Biden's presidential victory. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. On Tuesday the 29th of March, Peter Lewis here with the day's business headlines. Shanghai began began a citywide lockdown yesterday morning as the mainland's financial hub became the centre of the Omicron outbreak. New infections in Shanghai continued to climb, hitting 3,500 in total. The Shanghai government is allowing some factories to operate a closed-loop system that isolates staff to allow plants to keep operating during the lockdown. The Pudong Financial Hub was among the first areas of the city to start four days of mass testing from 5am yesterday. The lockdown scheduled to conclude at 5am on Friday. Chief Executive Carrie Lam said on Monday that Hong Kong was caught in a dilemma between meeting Beijing's expectations for dynamic zero Covid and meeting the expectations of international businesses and investors. She told pro-Beijing lawmakers in a video call that it's difficult for Hong Kong to meet both sides' requirements. She said solutions were needed and she urged national lawmakers and political advisers to play a role in the border reopening. Leaders of the G7 nations have rejected Moscow's demand to pay for energy imports from Russia in rubles, according to Germany's energy minister. Vladimir Putin announced last week that Russia wanted unfriendly countries to pay for natural gas only in the Russian currency from now on. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Hao Hong at Bocom International and Sunil Kashap from Finmet discussing digital banking is David Hardoon, Managing Director of Abatis Data Innovation. And if you want to get in contact, please text 6393 Email money talk at rthk.hk. You can post on our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, or tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street's Monday, US stocks ended a choppy session slightly higher. The S&P 500 added 0.7% to close at 4,576, extending its two-week rally. Consumer discretionary technology and real estate stocks rose, while energy shares led the benchmark's decliners. The Dow added 95 points to close at 34,956. The Nasdaq Composite rose 1.3% to 14,355. Tesla jumped 8% after the electric car maker said it would request shareholder approval at its annual meeting for a stock split. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index was up 0.1%. The UK's FTSE 100 fell 0.1%. Russia's benchmark Moex Index fell 2.2% Monday in a shortened session as Moscow allowed all Russian shares to trade for the first time since the invasion of Ukraine. Stocks in Hong Kong and Shanghai tumbled at the open but then regained ground as the day wore on after authorities in Shanghai locked down the Pudong Financial District. The Hang Seng Index ended Monday 280 points or 1.3% higher at 21,685. The Tech Index rose 2.6%. The Shanghai Composite Index rose 0.1% to 3,214. 
Oil prices were down more than 9% as traders' hopes for a resolution to the war in Ukraine increased and amid concerns that the lockdown in Shanghai could weaken demand for energy. The price of Brent crude dropped 9.4% to $109.35 a barrel by the close in New York. It has rebounded a little bit in Asian trading this morning to $110.03 a barrel. Gold is down almost 2% at $1,925 an ounce. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note is a session high of 2.55% on Monday. That's the highest level since May 2019 before retreating to 2.47%. Japan's 10-year yields rose to 0.245%. That's the highest since January 2016, prompting the Bank of Japan to announce an unlimited buying operation to keep them below its 25 basis point ceiling. That's the second such move in less than two months. As a result of that, the Japanese yen has fallen to a seven-year low against the dollar at one point, breaching the 125 per dollar level. This morning, the yen is down 1.5% against the dollar at 123.86. The euro is trading at $1.10. Sterling is 0.7% weaker at $1.31 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 26 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.38 and a half in offshore markets and Bitcoin is over 7% higher at $47,400. That's the highest level of the year so far. And Asian stocks are on the move to the upside in Australia. The ASX 200 up two-thirds of a percent. Nikkei 225 in Japan also up two-thirds of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea has risen 0.8%. And it looks like the Hang Seng is all set for a gain of about 200 points at the open this morning. It's 8.09. Let's welcome our guests over in our Queensway studio. We have Sunil Kashap, who's director at FinMet. Morning, Sunil. Good morning, Peter. And on the phone, we have Hao Hong, managing director and head of research at Bocom International. Morning, Hao. Good morning. Um, Sunil, let me start with you. I want to ask you about this, uh, this global bond drought that, uh, that we're seeing, uh, not just in the US now. It seems to be spreading, doesn't it, to uh, Australian bonds, uh, the yield there. Uh, hit the highest level since May uh, 2000 and uh, uh, sorry, uh, jumped to the highest since December 2014. Japan's 10-year uh, bond yields uh, prompted the BOJ to announce this unlimited buying operation. What, what's behind all of this? Why are we seeing this uh, sort of big rout in bonds now, government bonds around the world? Well, I think it's a, it's a reflection of the changing perceptions, right? Um, and largely reflected from uh, what's coming out of the Fed. Um, you know, clearly the Fed has seen an incredible change in mindset over the last six months. Uh, now, you know, from moving, talking about transitory in, uh, inflation, they're talking about um, core inflation being at 7%. And so, um, and they're talking about taking um, strong action to, to try and curb inflation. So, you know, as they move towards four, uh, hikes of 25 basis points to actually talking about the next two hikes being of 50 basis points each. That's a dramatic move, and mm. so the market is just reflecting that change um, in in overview of where interest rates are going. 
Um, so I think that's what you're seeing right now. The, the Bloomberg US Treasury Index has lost about 6.5% so far this year. That's the worst quarter in data going back to 1973. Is it fair to say now that this long-term multi-year decline that we've been seeing in bond yields, has it come to an end? Um, uh, well, I, th I think for sure. I mean, uh, right now you can uh, see at least in the short term rates from two to twos to fives uh, are, have gone up dramatically. Um, the, the long term 30 year uh, bond rates are still steady. So uh, I think in the short term, they're definitely looking at higher rates uh, for mm -hmm. the next two to five years. How what do these uh, rising bond yields mean for, for markets out here, particularly in Hong Kong and on the mainland? Yeah, well, normally when um the bond yield is rising so fast, so rapidly. Uh, it, it suggests a U.S. dollar shortage uh, somewhere else in the world except in the U.S. Uh, so, you know, at this, at this stage, uh, capital tends to fly back to uh, the U.S. and, you know, create, you know, a, a short-term uh, U.S. dollar li liquidity crunch and then put pressure on stocks. Mm. It's the part of the problem. It's not just where yields are at at the moment it's the speed with which they're moving isn't it that, that tends right. to cause problems for for policy makers more than maybe the, the absolute level of the yields yeah it's because yeah, of well, sorry go ahead, go ahead. sorry yeah no. i think the um I, I think the yield the rising yield um, is the reflection of how fast uh, inflation has been moving up and you know how slow the uh, fed has been responding to uh, inflation pressure uh, so, you know, if, if the Fed is not, you know, doing the tightening, you know, the, the bond market would do it for you. And so that is what happened now. Uh, in addition, I think the, the, the Ukraine crisis is, is reflecting in terms of energy prices and then obviously knocking on to all other things. Um, so, so that's an additional factor which is really putting more oil to the, to the rally. The Bank of Japan, it's in a bit of a hole here, isn't it? Isn't it going to find it increasingly hard to keep the 10-year bond yield below 0.25% its targets when, when the Fed's aggressively raising interest rates? Yeah, well, I think the spread between uh, uh, the Japanese JGB and also the, the U.S. Treasury is, you know, widening and it's putting pressure on the, uh, uh, on the uh, Japanese yen. Uh, so traditionally, uh, you know, the Japanese yen is a respond currency, so it's, it's a funding currency uh, that you use to fund your carry trade, you know, on other risky assets. And that seems to be happening right now. So over the past three weeks, you know, we're seeing a substantial move up uh, of, of the U.S. stocks, you know, the SPX, uh, S&P 500 is up, you know, almost 10%. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, the uh, Nasdaq almost recuperated most of the losses this year. Sunil, can this can this policy divergence continue for, for for too much longer? Something's going to break here, isn't it? Yeah, at some point they'll have to come in to either intervene on the currency side, um, or actually step away from the policy. But you know, the BOJ is 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 uh, infamous for for taking time to change their minds. Mm. Uh, but I think the markets are going to do it for them. I mean, they haven't stepped in since to support the currency since uh, nineteen ninety eight, or had haven't intervened in the currency. Um, and, and at the time, it was to try and stop a, a stronger yen here. It would have to be trying to support the currency, wasn't it? Yes, and, and the, the move has been quite dramatic. Right? We moved from sort of 110 to 125 levels fairly fast. So uh, I think we can expect some kind of, at least some kind of uh, statements um, trying to, uh, to bring the market uh, more, more in line with what it was earlier. 
Mm. How, when we see um, the Japanese yen declining like this so rapidly, what, what's the risk that you sort of start seeing across Asia um, other competitive devaluations and maybe particularly the Chinese yuan? Will this put pressure on the Chinese yuan? Um, the yuan is already uh, weakening, although not very significantly. Uh, I think the yuan's uh, weakness, uh, it is a reflection of the divergence between uh, the central bank policy between uh, China and the U.S. Uh, so mm. obviously, you know, as you can see, uh, going into the first quarter of this year, Chinese uh, economic momentum is not building up. Uh, it still needs some help, while, you know, the U.S. has been very hawkish. So basically, the 10-year yield difference between uh, China and the U.S. Uh, bond has basically vanished. Uh, so that is in turn putting pressure on the Chinese yen. But, you know, I think at this stage, a, a weaker Chinese yen is actually uh, good for the Chinese economy in the sense that, you know, it would actually stimulate some demand for Chinese exports. Mm-hmm. So, Neil, what, what, what do you think? Do you yes. think there's a risk of competitive devaluations around Asia now? I think I think the China situation is is particular uh, where uh, you know the 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 government is trying to keep uh, interest rates lower, um, and so so you, because the economy is is suffering because of their um, uh, COVID related policies, and so that's uh, that's getting reflected in terms of uh, slower economic growth, and then getting reflected in terms of their um, their keenness to keep the interest rates low, and so therefore you have. You have to see a weakening of currencies. I think in some of the other economies, um, you ha- you do have a situation where uh, the central banks are caught between higher inflation um, versus a slowing economy, so they don't know how to act. Um, mm-hmm. And so you may see some amount of um, currency weakening again, just boost up exports to try and uh, support the economy. How where are we down with? Um Chinese stocks. We we had this big sell-off a couple of weeks ago. Um, then we had a quite a nice rebound. That rebound seems to have stalled out, doesn't it? What what's going on? Um, well, I think we had a really a strong rebound. I think it's a short covering rally, uh, especially in, the, in 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 Hong Kong. And I think the uh, the mainland stocks are just picking up uh, the cues from the Hong Kong uh, stocks momentum in the past two weeks. Uh, so I would say that, you know, right now, um, you know, because we had a very important meeting uh, during the meeting, uh, basically there were uh, policy uh, answers, well, uh, sort of a high level policy answers to you know, many of the top market concerns. And I think, you know, a week ago, the market sort of, you know, taking hints from the meeting that, you know, there will be supportive uh, policies coming out, you know, to support the economy and therefore yeah. the stock market. Uh, but so far, you know, we haven't we haven't got the LPR cut uh, that we were expecting. And I think the uh, central bank is still neutral uh, on the uh, monetary policy. Uh, and then, you know, unfortunately, the COVID situation uh, seems to be worsening. Uh, and I think Shanghai and, and many cities are going into lockdown mode. And it, it evoked uh, the memories of early uh, 2020, you know, when the, Ch- uh, the Chinese economy was locked down and the GDP growth was negative 9.8%, and it was the worst in history. Yeah, and, you know, I would be a bit more pessimistic in terms of uh, going forward. I think the statements, I mean, the short covering rally that we've seen was triggered by the statements that were made um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, but there's been no follow-through, like Hong said. And so, um, and and I think the market is skeptical whether there will be a follow-through, whether there's political will to make some real dramatic um, 
rollbacks in terms of policies uh, regarding um, um, common prosperity, the technology uh, regulatory framework, and all the other things. Mm. So I think um, you know th- the market will certainly now find that there's no follow-up action, and you start swing, drifting it lower again. Plus, you have this uh, increased comp- complication of of COVID. Um, so it, it, it's going to be a tough um, run in the coming months, I think, for the stock market in China. One of the things that seemed to have ended the rally, how was um, the U.S. regulators saying that this talk about um, regulators in China and the U.S. coming to some sort of agreement on the delisting of companies, they basically said that was premature. How much is, is that an overhang on the market at the moment? Um, yeah, well, I, I think the... Um uh, the talks is still ongoing, so it's, it's too early to draw a conclusion. But one has to recognize the fact that uh, in this negotiation, you know, China doesn't have a lot of uh, bargaining chips on the table, right? So it's mm-hmm. probably, uh, you know, China's uh, uh, peaceful role uh, in a conflict and potentially, you know, China, China can act as a balancing uh, uh, items, uh, you know, during the uh, uh, Western uh, and the Russian negotiation. And let's hope that happens. You know, so uh, it is, you know, still too early to draw a conclusion. I think, you know, the uh, talks between uh, the Chinese and U.S. regulators regarding the U.S. listed Chinese stocks have been going on for years now. Uh, you know, we haven't seen any uh, final conclusion. And, and the situation for the Chinese companies in the U.S. seems to be worsening uh, every time they come up with a, a news release. So last week, Weibo, you know, which is the Chinese Twitter uh, you know, was listed, uh, was nominated uh, in, in, in the watch list as well. Uh, so, you know, there is no easy way out. And I think the CSRC uh, in China is preparing for at least you know, some of the uh, U.S. listed Chinese stocks to come back to China or to Hong Kong to get listed. Uh, so it remains to be, seen, uh, to be seen, you know, what sort of uh, outcomes out can be come out of this negotiation. Mm-hmm. But having said that, you know, we still have like three years until 2024. Uh, you know, to sort of comply with the U.S. regulation. So now we've also, of course, got the Russia-Ukraine conflict dragging on. That's another overhang, isn't it, for Chinese markets, particularly the fear that maybe uh, Chinese companies may get uh, sanctioned. Yes. Yeah, well, I think the um, uh, the point is that uh, China does a lot of export trade with, uh, with uh, Russia, especially uh, the Russian energy products and also commodity exports. Uh, so China needs that for economic growth. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a normal trade terms, you know, that has been agreed between the two countries before the conflict. And, you know, somehow it's still ongoing, you know, because we still need that commodities. Uh, so as a result, you know, there are concerns about, you know, whether the Western sanction on Russia, you know, can be sort of repulsed uh, over uh, uh, to, to China. But I, I would say that, you know, even during the World War II, the, the U.S. was still trading with Japan. Uh, so I would say it's, you know, almost hypocritic, you know, to say that, you know, China shouldn't be engaged in a trading relationship uh, with Russia, uh, you know, just because, you know, there are conflicts uh, between uh, Russia and the West. Sunil? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's, uh, I think what we're seeing is a picture emerging where the West is uh, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, the, the sanctions regime, um, it, it, when it comes to secondary sanctions in terms of uh, uh, third countries dealing with uh, Russia, um, I think the, uh, the 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 West is a little bit more flexible. I think in terms of uh, you know 
allowing uh, certain uh, economic ties to continue uh, as long as it can't be tied back directly to uh, funding the, um, the the sort of the the arms uh, and the, and the war so if it's for humanitarian purposes i think um, the west is much more open to allowing that so if you know as long as the the trade remains along those channels of uh, humanitarian sort of uh, food and agriculture and other uh, manufacturing goods uh, i think we should be fine I want to ask you both about that report from the Institute of International Finance, which said global investors have withdrawn money out of China on an unprecedented scale, especially since they're not seeing similar outflows from the rest of emerging markets. How big a, a worry is that for the markets? Are you seeing uh, this type of uh, withdrawal from global investors? Mm, I wouldn't say it's unprecedented. Uh, you know, we've seen this before uh, in March 2020 during the depths of uh, the the pandemic, right? So you know, people were so frightened that you know China's economic growth uh, would be contagion, mm -hmm. and and therefore you know would, would be grinding to a halt. Which, to a certain extent, it was true uh, in the sense that you know the first quarter of 2020 was the worst quarter ever uh, uh, in the Chinese macroeconomics since we reform and open in 1978. Uh, I think right now um, the issues kind of different, you know, you know, it, it's a reflection of, you know, foreign confidence in the Chinese market, you know, because after all, uh, since the uh, middle of last year, uh, the Chinese uh, stocks, especially, you know, the offshore listed Chinese stocks in Hong Kong and also in the U.S. had plunged, uh, you know, some, some internet stocks have plunged at 80, 90 percent, you know, some actually wiped out uh, from, uh, from the stock exchange. So I, I don't blame them for, you know, being concerning about the situation and therefore you know the capital outflow uh, is a reflection of that uh, mm -hmm. so you know even before the IFA report you know we can see that in the um, uh, the reduction of ownership uh, in both institutional and, and retail uh, uh, accounts in Hong Kong and also we can see that from the connect program and we can also see that from the capital account uh, movement uh, from the uh, from the uh, Chinese uh, currency authorities Mm -hmm. So, you know, all in all, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise, you know, because after all, uh, the uh, Chinese economic growth uh, is slowing uh, and historically it had happened before. Okay. Yeah. Well, I would say that uh, it's, it's, this is, you know, at least in my uh, perception, is, is, it's quite dramatic in terms of the contrast, right? For, for many years, China has been mm. comparatively a good investment compared to the rest of the world. But the difference now is stark. You know, you can see if you look at the outlook uh, for the Chinese markets, you know, given the regulatory framework, given the way that they're responding to COVID, um, given the need for stability um, till, till November, there's so many um, unknowns in China compared to the rest of the world. Um, and you, you, that's why I think the investors right. are trying to move their money to wherever they can get the best return. Okay, great. Thank you. Sadly, we've run out of time, but thank you both very much. That's Sunil Kashap, Director at FinMets, Hao Hong, Managing Director and Head of Research at Bocom International. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Twenty-five on the phone is David Hardoon, Chief Data and Innovation Officer for Abitits Group and Managing Director of Abitits Data Innovation in the Philippines. Morning, David. Good morning, Peter. Good morning to listeners. 
Thank you for joining us. Um, I wanted to ask you about digital banking. I know that's something that you've been very focused on. It, it's an area that's seeing a lot of growth, isn't it, in Southeast Asia? But despite that, many Southeast Asians still remain relatively underbanked. Tell us a little bit about the situation in uh, in the Philippines and Southeast Asia. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, one, one of the fundamental challenges is how do you approach and provide financial services to people who may not even have you know, national ideas, let alone a banking history. Uh, think that you start up a new company and you want to go and say, look, I want to get a loan, but I have no history of operating that company. I mean, that's the reality on the ground. Hence, the increase of digital finances really, and, and, and the usage of data, in fact, in that right, is increasing because it provides a fundamental opportunity to start providing um, financing, essentially across the board, the ability to do the risk estimations, whereas previously it wasn't possible. And on that note, if, if I may, just to give you a bit of a context, this is one of the things that effectively we do. And operating as a body of innovation, we're, we're, as you mentioned, we're part of a conglomerate which covers power, land, infrastructure, food. That perspective is exactly one of the unique views of how do you start looking at finance differently? How do you start using information data from different uh, worlds, but still part of the ecosystem, in order to be able to lend you money. Mm. So you're using artificial intelligence that has a big part to play in this, doesn't it, in terms of uh, credit scoring and, and analysing uh, risk of, of, and then helping you make sort of, in effect, uh, better loans, offer, offer more competitive loans. Yes, yeah. And, and you know something, put, 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 put the term AI aside. AI ultimately is a tool. What it is fundamentally is about finding a pattern. What we as a financial institution or helpers of financial institutions want to be able to identify, as you mentioned, is good and bad potential uh, uh, borrowers. Mm. And at the same time, we're like dealing with a situation of, well, hold on a second, this is a new territory from a financial point of view, let's say using uh, your acquisition of food. So ultimately, AI, machine learning, data science, everyone referred, is, is, is essentially a mechanism of saying, well, how can we start relate these words? How can we start identifying how to use information, how to use data that helps the financial institution, helps us essentially identify that, you know something? You're still going to be a good borrower, even though you don't have, let's say, um, a bank history for the last six months or 12 months. You're still going to be a good borrower. And just to give you a very simple example of that, is let's say you're, you're a small, uh, small little hawker store like you're in Singapore or a restaurant you've just started, and I'm looking at your power utilization. Mm. I'm looking at the amount of food you're buying from your distributors. Gee, these are all things. And AI is that ability to bring it together and utilize it. And that's the most important part, not just talking about it, mm. but putting it into practice. Now, some countries, and, and China springs to mind, have concerns about the way financial firms collect this data, the way they use it. They don't like even uh, distinguishing between different types of customers through this data. Are, are you finding similar pushback at all from regulators in Southeast Asia? I, I wouldn't call it a pushback, but I definitely would call it a, a focus of interest. Now, look, I'm, I'm an ex-regulator, actually. I was the CDO at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, so this is a mm. very, very close to hot topic. And I'm an avid believer that the world of governance, fiduciary responsibility, especially within the context of finance, and the world innovation can come together. So it's really down to the question of how do we do it right? First and foremost, if I want to use that you know, power consumption data that I was just referring to as an example, well, I need to ask consent. So that's the important element of, are we asking for consent? Is it done transparency? Are we mm -hmm. potentially avoiding mitigating those situations of 
of, 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 of excluding demographics, which will be the exact contrary of the whole point of it. So it can be done, but this is where it becomes really important that we need to make sure there is those guidelines, those rails, those controls in place in ensuring that relationship with our consumers. And this is something where the financial world is very familiar with. I mean, it is, in fact, the most regulated industry around. Perhaps whereas in the now the new tech uh, regimes, it's a kind of new. I think this is where you find China coming into play by saying, look, you guys have to play with the same rules that these other folks are playing. And that's exactly what we're doing from day one. We're making sure everything is above board. There's privacy consent. It's all baked, essentially, as far because it's about trust, effectively. And equally, if you're saying, look, David, look, I, I'm not willing to provide certain types of information to help get a loan, that's perfectly fine. But I need to have a mechanism to identify whether or not I can lend. And if you do not have that traditional information, I may not be able to. Mm. So effectively, it's a, it's a win-win situation. Okay. Well, look, I'd love to talk about this more with you, but sadly we've run out of time, so we'll have to do this again uh, sometime in the future. That's David Hardoon, who's Managing Director of Abatis Data Innovation. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Things are looking pretty positive around Asian markets this morning. In Australia, the ASX 200 up 0.8%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen half a percent now. The Cosby in South Korea is up about a third of a percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to rise 200 points at the open. Brent crude oil trading at $110. And uh, gold right now, $1,925 an ounce. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for COVID update after the news with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy. A few showers, squally thunderstorms later. Maximum temperature is going to be about 21 degrees and some more thunderstorms at first tomorrow. It's 18 degrees right now, 81% relative humidity. Time's 8.32. Here's Andy Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. A lawmaker has urged the government to issue guidelines to ensure children infected with COVID won't be separated from their parents or caregivers. Stephen Wong said the prospect of families being separated had hurt Hong Kong's reputation and called on authorities to disclose how many children were hospitalized during the fifth wave, as well as how many of them were separated from their caregivers. Mr. Wong also urged officials to offer follow-up mental health care to these children. Children that, that actually have been through this during the fifth wave and actually uh, find them out and know who they are and then uh, give mental health intervention um, to the children as well as, um, you know, as a caregiver, you empower the caregiver, uh, you train the care- caregiver to actually how to deal with these sort of a post-trauma uh, impact uh, psychologically and mentally. Uh, I think uh, a lot of things needs to be done to actually make sure that there are uh, no lasting or to minimize the long-lasting impact of these uh, traumatic uh, impacts. A logistics expert says COVID rules on cross-border truck drivers could lead to an increased cost and delays in deliveries. A truck driver's union says the rules have put some drivers out of work. Hong Kong drivers can only pick up or drop off goods at designated points. Colin Wong from the, the Hang Seng University's Department of Supply Chain and Information Management says many shipments are now being sent by air or sea to cross the mainland border. But he said this change may not be long term. Of situation will become a long-term situation if uh, the COVID-19 uh, case uh, can, you know, be resolved uh, ultimately. Because uh, we do see these three types of transportations uh, exist 
for long. Uh, I do still see some benefits for sending by truck, uh, such as uh, they can provide very flexible door-to-door services. A federal judge in the United States has ruled that Donald Trump must hand over key documents to the committee investigating the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol. The former president and his lawyer had argued that emails between the pair were protected by attorney-client privilege, but the judge said they'd been engaged in likely criminal behavior. The BBC's Nomia Iqbal has more. The judge said Donald Trump and his lawyer John Eastman had launched a campaign to overturn a Democratic election. In total, there are 111 emails that Mr Trump's lawyer had attempted to shield from investigators. But after reviewing the documents, Judge David Carter decided only 10 fell under...